Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. What's up, everybody? Welcome back. Another episode of A Little More Good coming at you. Thank you, as always, for tuning into the show. I'm here with my pal Zach. How you doing today? Good. Yeah. Excited. Always excited. There's so much. I feel like I've uh, been diving deep into my wells of curiosity and just uh, when you're curious, there's so much to be excited about. It's good. I know. I know our... our curiosity always uh leads us in these directions of researching new things becoming passionate about stuff that you know at one time we maybe just took for granted or overlooked in our lives yes it's uh it's a fun way to live yeah Yeah. i always my my wife always rolls her eyes at me because i i go through these phases i like to get obsessed with something and kind of dive as deep as i can and and kind of be a student and and kind of surround myself with as much knowledge and then when I have some inkling of understanding you know I'll I'll move on to something else and yeah. then come back to it and um but it it can be kind of phases of obsession that <laughs> eventually become phases of you know filters of who I am yeah as a as a whole that's right well it's like a, it's like something new that you I always liken it to you find a new band yes that you're like whoa who are these people or who is this artist, right? How have I never heard of her or them or whatever it is? And then you kind of dive deep into the catalog and you listen to all the albums and find the tracks and read the website and the bio. And you kind of, for me as like someone who's like a self-professed kind of music nerd, that's what I would love. And I'd be like, get so excited about it. And I would want to tell people about it, right? Yo, have you heard of this band? Or I know that you like, you know, these guys, you got to check out this group. They're like similar vibes and you get so excited about it. And the same goes when it comes to, you know, just like living well and lifestyle hacks or things that we can do, whatever we want to call them to just kind of like level up and and be better versions of ourselves, whether that's just as, you know, partners, dads, whatever, business owners, teachers, subpar athletes, <laughs> amateur, <laughs> amateur, pro- amateur professionals, professional, professional amateur. amateurs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's so cool. It's so cool to just try and invest in yourself day after day and have that kind of growth mindset. Yes. We should do a mini pod sometime on like things we're obsessed with and yeah, just like kind of fun. unravel, go down that rabbit hole. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and way back, like one of our earlier episodes was like, uh, Cordyceps. Cordyceps and it was like yes. things, things we love or something like that. Yeah. yeah. And running we did. Uh, yeah. I don't even know if we aired these. I don't think that's the, that's the, 
it was a two-parter. Yeah, our love, our love letter to Renan. Uh, it's still buried somewhere in my in my uh, editing platform in the archives of there. conversations That's that right. uh, have not been aired. The yeah. B sides, the B sides, the basement tapes. Oh, I always loved the B sides. I know. Yeah. Well, you never know. Maybe they'll, maybe we'll we will let like one Sublime. Go. Remember the B sides by Sublime? Amazing. Yeah. Such, yeah. Such, such good stuff. Yeah. Well, I was heard on the radio just the other day uh, a Gord Downey song that's new, and I was like, "Say what?" Like, because Gordani has obviously passed away a number of years ago. Um, but there are all of these like recordings and stuff. Yes. And, and famous producer Bob Rock has like worked, I guess, with Gord's family and, you know, his estate, whatever, however it would work. But they're releasing like this new, I love that. new material. And it's yeah. kind of like posthumously, it's kind of cool. Like, yeah. Yeah. He lives on, as do many artists and people. And we carry them forward with us in ways. But it's neat to, to literally experience, you know, how you would as if he was still alive. Yeah. yeah so, anyway. Waves never die, right? Waves don't die. There we go. Yes. So this week, I I was so excited for this conversation. I feel like leading into it, I don't know if I've immersed myself in someone's work as much as I did uh, with this week's guest, uh, Sanjay Raywal. Mm-hmm. Um, Sanjay's an, an Indian-American documentary film director who lives in New York City. And I just uh, went full head on first uh, into watching all of his documentaries, leading to uh, read, listening to all his podcasts, and his work is just so beautiful. Uh, it's it's just captured a humanity that um, you know gives me hope. Whether mm. it's in running, or bodybuilding, or food sovereignty, or farming. He has a, a beautiful connection to to our human history and and how we connect to planet Earth, whether that's farming or food sovereignty or how we run or how we connect to you know building building our muscles. Mm-hmm. Like uh, you know his his documentary, his short doc called "Challenging Impossibility." Like even that yeah, name, you know, so chal- challenging impossibility. Like just. Let that resonate. Where can you challenge impossibility in your life? Right. You know, it's and it's about uh, his guru, Sri Chinmoy, and his prolific uh, weightlifting. And, um, you know, you need to watch it for yourself. But mm-hmm. I, like, it's so incredible that my brain can't comprehend how it's possible. It's this this older, Sri Chinmoy at this point is an older, older man who takes up bodybuilding mostly because he's having a hard time running, you know, in his later seventies or whatever. And he's lifting, you know, thousands of pounds in, in, in ways that I don't think is possible for a young body, let alone an older body. Yeah. And so that idea of challenging impossibility and, you know, connecting mind and body and yeah, his work, um, you know, check out, uh, that movie challenging impossibility, um, check out Food Chains, mm-hmm. uh, which is an incredible one about you know our farm systems and and the the human factor, the the people that farm the farms, um, gather about food sovereignty is incredible, and the one that we focused on in this conversation, thirty one hundred, uh, run and become, is just an incredible money uh, movie, yeah. <laughs> money movie yeah. on uh, transcendence through through running and, yeah. and um, embodiment through running. And uh, these are kind of the anti-heroes of, of 
running and athletics and it's just so beautiful and so moving to see, to, to watch. Yeah, it definitely, it was such a, such a powerful and fun conversation. Um, Sanjay's uh, incredible storyteller, not only in the form of uh, the podcast, but through his work, the, the visual stories that he tells the documentaries that he's created and worked on, um, are, are beautifully done and reveal, uh, the inherent ability in all of us. And it does. It simply is as the name of the one doctor states, it allows us to challenge those concepts of impossibility. We talk about like the limiting beliefs we put on ourselves and you see someone like Sri Chinmoy and the things that he accomplishes and it helps you imagine what might be possible for yourself. And we are just so grateful to be able to, to have the time, to speak with Sanjay, hear a little bit about his story and how he got involved and, and curious and eventually followed the path of, of Sri Chimoy um, and, and how he's connected to these stories that he's telling and why he wants to tell them and, and beyond. It was a, it was a beautiful conversation to share. We're so grateful to him for, for that. So we know you're going to love it. Yes. Big thanks to Sanjay for, for saying yes and, and having a conversation with us. Uh, before we let this convo roll, and I know that you're going to enjoy it, uh, just a couple couple things to, to check in with. Uh, one, if you've been enjoying these podcasts, uh, please do share with a friend, family member, cousin, uncle, sister, neighbor, you know, classmate, whatever it might be. It helps us uh, spread the word of goodness and like and subscribe wherever you're getting your podcasts. It does make a big difference uh, for us trying to do a little more good. And secondly, uh, this this episode of A Little More Good is brought to you by Athletic Greens, the foundation of daily health, comprehensive nutrition and gut health support in one simple scoop of green goodness. Oh, yes. Delicious green goodness, might I add. I've been taking it uh, pretty much every day for the last month and a half or so, and it has been, uh, it's so good. I feel like I don't have to think about how am I getting, how am I going to make sure that I get like my baseline of greens and nutrients and everything in. It's like first thing in the morning, fill up the little bottle, dump it, dump in the scoop, give it a shake. I love the shake too. It's it's like therapeutic to just like shake it and see it dissolve and kind of merge in a beautiful way into the water. Oh, and the color is just so rich. Like it's this rich, deep green. I've even, I've even, uh, not wanted it. I've wanted to make it last. So I've kind of drank half of it and then refilled it and even refilling the bottle halfway. Like the taste is still so strong. It's still so good. So I, cause I just want to savor it and, and let it last and, you know, also up my water intake. And so it's a way of ensuring that I'm drinking my water, enjoying something tasty and something that's really good for me. The thing that blows my mind about, um, uh, athletic greens, AG one drink is that it has 75 ingredients ranging from vitamins, minerals, phytonutrients, adaptogens, mushrooms, prebiotics, probiotics, essential cofactors, and antioxidants. All of these superfoods and herbal extracts, you know, uh, put in this scoop and made so easy to combine with our, you know, our body and our bioactive forms to just work together to maximize those benefits as we take them in in this easily digestible liquid. Like you drink it and you are absorbing and getting the benefits of all of those 75 power packed ingredients right away. There you go. So if you like athletics like we do and you like greens like we do, this is the the perfect combo. Promoting your gut health, supporting immunity, boosting energy, helping recovery. It's the one scoop. 
that gives it all. That's right. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash more good. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash more good. Visit that to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. There we go. Yeah. I, want, I, want, I already had mine this morning, but uh, just hearing that, I want some more. Yeah, it's so good. All right, let's let this episode roll. Sanjay Raywal. All right, all right. Welcome back, everyone. We're very excited for today's conversation and a special welcome to uh, our guest, Sanjay Rawal. We're very, very uh, grateful to have you join us here today on A Little More Good. Um, get into a little bit of your story, some of the things that inspire you in your life um, to go on and do the things that you do, make beautiful films and run far distances that serve as inspiration to others. So really, really looking forward to um, this conversation with you today. And uh, thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us. Uh, pleasure's all mine. Thanks for having me on. Right on, right on. I said before we got launched that I've just been so immersed in in your your movies and your videos and your podcasts, and I feel like I've been soaking in all the inspiration. So grateful for the work that you've created, and I feel like you've um, elevated this this notion of of movement as as a spiritual practice. And I just want to express my gratitude for the stories that you share and the space that you hold. Well, thank you very, very much. I'm looking forward to really digging into a lot of that. I, I, yeah. I, I'm happy to take credit, but I definitely don't deserve the credit. But we'll get into that. We'll get into that. Definitely. Well, maybe we can start a little bit with, with your story and um, have that go from kind of your origins in running into your, your how Sri Chinmoy came into your life and who Sri Chinmoy is. And we can kind of expand the conversation from there. Great. Well, I, I was born in Africa, but was raised in Boulder, Colorado, and San Leandro, California, a suburb of Oakland. And I went to college at University of California, Berkeley, just uh, about 15 minutes away from where I went to elementary school and uh, high school in the East Bay. My parents were from India, and you know, first-generation immigrants, all of us technically were, to the U.S., and it didn't seem like there were that many paths to success. Education got my parents out of the villages that they grew up in in India. And so it was really expected of me from a very young age to take advantage of all the kind of outer opportunities that America had. You know, so I was a Boy Scout. I played three or four sports a year. Um, really kind of like my mom challenged me to, to excel at academics as well. Started college when I was actually still in high school. So you know, it's like that trajectory was to be like a doctor or a scientist or a lawyer. Um, I, you know, I was very athletic in, in high school and, and, and good at a few things and, and okay at a couple of other things. But in university, I kind of had a crisis of conscience. A lot of people do, obviously. But for whatever reason, I kind of began looking for the answers in philosophy. Not that I grew up in a philosophical or a really orthodox household at all, but I knew that there were two worlds. I mean, a lot of folks growing up in the West have no idea about Buddhism, about Hinduism, about alternative forms of thinking. I mean, most folks don't even really know about Plato and Socrates and the Stoics, but at least I had a, a little understanding that that stuff existed. And 
it completely changed my outlook. I realized that, you know, the kind of outer path of success was ephemeral. I mean, the idea of success was very much defined by, you know, who you married, you know, what your job was like, how much you earned. And it didn't seem like that was going to give me satisfaction. You know, going to school in Berkeley, California, there were a lot of opportunities to encounter spiritual groups. And so like, I went to, to, to every single meditation center I could. Um, and when I came across a, a series of classes given by the students of Sri Chinmoy in Berkeley, a couple of things struck me. Number one, it didn't cost anything. And, you know, like from a, a traditional Eastern standpoint, no one has a monopoly or ownership on, on wisdom. And that's something traditionally offered for free in the West because of rents, et cetera, and people wanting to make a living um, teaching. Um, I couldn't afford a lot of the classes that were offered. So the, the, the lack of price also meant something to me ethically, not just practically. Mm -hmm. But the student who gave that class was very pure. And it, that's a quality that we don't really have a concept of in the West. The idea of innocence isn't really valued. I mean, we don't really put a fence around kids and their access to things that will take away their innocence. Mm -hmm. And so at a, at a very early ages in, in, in the West, you know, we're thinking about images and, you know, attitudes towards people that are not mature. And we're also given the space to act on that. And I'm, I'm no exception. But the fellow that was teaching this class, I could tell that he had worked really hard to recultivate a sense of innocence, almost in, in a in a, in a childlike way, not childish, but childlike, where out of that innocence came openness, came curiosity, came acceptance. I mean, in a greeting card way, he didn't really seem like he was going to be afraid of being hurt. So immediately there was just that like willingness to like, to, to be completely open. And that also meant that he wasn't transactional, even you know, to, 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 to people that there was nothing, no interest romantically, just in a, in a casual setting. And I felt that was unique because I felt that in a lot of other groups, people were really struggling with themselves and really struggling with, with how their eyes saw people versus how their hearts felt people. And it's not to say that, that, that there's one group in the world that's better than everything else, but that resonated with me then. Because those are the things that I was having issues with. Like, you know, your eyes see something or someone beautiful and immediately like you're captivated by that. And even if it was somebody passing, you would think about them. And I didn't really like that. I, the idea that these things could attach me. Mm. And so it seemed in a long way that he didn't have that, that attachment. So I, I quickly, you know, want, I quickly kind of became interested in joining Sri Chinmoy's meditation group. And again, I was 19. Sri Chimway had three rules. Number one, no drinking. You know, ah, okay, whatever. That just means weekends are less fun, but I didn't have time to drink anyhow, like being a pre-med major. Um, no smoking. I was running a lot, so, you know, it's like it was a casual cigarette. It's like, whatever. And then celibacy. So you go, 
okay, like, tell me why. And the reason wasn't some sort of really strict form of self-punishment. It wasn't this kind of nihilistic form of discipline. It was the idea that there's three kinds of love. Now, broadly speaking, you know, there's, there's the physicality of love. There's the emotionality of love. And there's the universality of love. And not that all three can't exist in the same space, but if you want the universality, as we know from having relationship, sometimes that's very, very difficult to have in a relationship, apart from maybe with your child. Um, the idea of totally being unconditional. And, and I was a mess. Like, I'm 19. Like, I don't, I don't know what it's like to have a healthy relationship with anybody, you know, of a gender that I'm attracted to. So I was like, okay, universality, like, let's go for it. I don't know what that is, but it's like, it's got to be better than what I'm dealing with. Um, but after six or seven months, I started developing that same purity I saw in the student that was teaching those classes. And I realized how much freedom there was in that emotional purity and how it allowed me to feel a sense of satisfaction that I didn't even know could exist within me as a human being. And I was hooked. So mm -hmm. I was like, I found my path, moved to New York, you know, like lived a few blocks away from Sri Chinmoy. Um, he was a, a, a spiritual teacher from India who was raised in an ashram in India, but, you know, spent, you know, the, basically from the age of 32 on, he spent his life in New York City as a teacher. Very good friends with other people like Mandela and Mother Teresa, but, you know, really here to help people become their best self. Wow. So you find yourself in New York on a spiritual pilgrimage, spiritual journey. Uh, what, what qualities, what, um, what notions for life did you find Sri Chinmoy was embodying? Oh, that's a great question. Like, I mean, most people don't move to New York in the pursuit of inner peace. Yeah. Oh, that spoke volumes about his path. There are, again, a million paths, but he felt that in this day and age, it's, it was impossible to really separate yourself from the vibration of the world. You know, he had this intuition in the 60s, even living in an ashram, and that's a million times more true now with cell phones and social media. And so he felt that if you couldn't escape the world, you had to embrace it. And by embracing it, you had to be in the world and serve the world, but not according to what the world expected of you. You were there to just be of sincere, selfless service and grow in that service. And so in New York City, you know, I, I, I realized that this kind of contemplative spiritual path, you know, had a very dynamic aspect, you know, and that involved sports as well, which was great. You know, it's like I, I didn't really realize that the body and the soul could go together. Hmm. Yeah, that's something we we talk a lot about here. It's like the idea of of embodiment. And even just recently, we were having conversation with with a friend of ours who talked about like this concept of like mind over matter and like how we will try to use our use our intellect or just like force ourselves to do something push push through something and it's simply like our mind doing it but it, it's a disembodied practice and separating that idea of like physicality i can do this or i can do that from embodiment 
and I see that like when we, you know, Zach and I are both runners. Um, we both love to, to push ourselves and challenge ourselves, you know, physically like you and, and recognizing that there is something physical, obviously, uh, innately buried in that, but then also at the deeper level, it is that uh, spiritual seeing and experiencing that we move along in. And that's something that maybe was unique uh, to Sri Chimoy, uh, Sri Chimoy was that, that desire to, um, show people that they can achieve that inner peace and enlightenment through movement. No, you're, you're absolutely correct. You know, he came to the U S in 1964 and he was in New York city when the running movement exploded. And if you can imagine New York city in the seventies, I mean, people were a lot more open than I think most people are these days The the, day before the New York City Marathon, when they were doing a, like the large public event and convening, Fred LeBeau, the, the head of the New York Roadrunners Club in those days, would have Sri Chinmoy come to Central Park and lead an opening meditation. Mm. And so there was this curiosity in the 70s about you know running, making you a better person, not just the way you looked, but the way you understood yourself. And so in those days, Sri Chinmay was really into marathon running and ran a, a bunch of marathons himself. But by the early 80s, the folks that had kind of, in, in general, the people that had been attracted to the marathon in the 50s, 60s, 70s, were seeking more opportunities to transcend. The marathon was no longer an exotic, exclusive, rebellious distance. And Sri Chinmay, with Fred LeBeau from the New York City Roadrunners Club, began sponsoring six-day races. Now, there's a long history of six-day races in New York City. In the 1800s, people would pack Madison Square Garden and watch these competitors, usually who were taking a ton of amphetamines, <laughs> try to walk or jog as many quarter-mile loops as they could in six days. And some of the records set then are, would still place people in the top 100 overall now. And it offered the first opportunities for African-Americans to become wealthy professional athletes. But Sri Chinmoy and Fred LeBeau wanted to revive that, obviously not with the methamphetamines and not with the, 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 the drug, I mean, the, uh, the, the betting that was taking place. And so it started. You know, people began coming from around the world to do these six-day races in parks and then Sri Chinmoy started a 1,000-mile race, a 1,300-mile race, a 2,700-mile race, and a 3,100-mile race that started in 1997, and that just finished its 26th edition day before yesterday. Right. So he really began to manifest the inner ideal that we are all, we are all truly unlimited. It wasn't just a greeting card idiom. He really felt that you could bring that into your mind to destroy barriers that your mind placed on your own achievement and into your body to push past the lethargy and uh, desire for comfort that most of us really cling to. If we can hang out there for a minute before we circle back to the running, because I want to go deep uh, on running as a spiritual practice, but this idea of challenging impossibility as a mindset. Um, I know you made this beautiful documentary on on Sri Chinmoy and his weightlifting. Um, I, you know, I've, I've heard his story of his running and his spiritual teachings, but 
He also uh, was this incredible weightlifter that I had connected with at that time, you know, the greatest weightlifters in that community. Um, and that for me, that was the most mind-blowing. Um, for those that are listening, if you go look up the doc, Challenging Impossibility, um, you've got this man, Sri Chinmoy, who's at this point, you know, in his senior years, lifting unfathomable amounts of weights, weight, weights that I, I can't imagine anybody lifting. And this, this man that looks older in age um, is having an embodied experience where he's lifting thousands of pounds of weight. So can, can you talk about this mindset of challenging impossibility and just kind of touch on his, the weightlifting component of his life before we get into running as a spiritual practice? For sure. In, in almost every single culture, if you look back thousands of years, the examples of spiritual teachers were, were not emaciated souls living you know, on the tops of mountains like we see in cartoons. Uh, they were warriors. They were extraordinarily powerful physically and inwardly. And Sri Chinmoy ran for a number of years, but you know it wasn't something that he was, as a long distance runner, that he was particularly excellent at. And so I suppose he wanted to be able to show the kind of unlimited power within him in a way that could translate into something tangible. And I'm, I'm, I suppose that if he started running sub two hour marathons, people would have thought it was just hocus pocus. So he began slowly lifting weights. And it, it seems very innocent because he was, I think the first workout he did, he could barely lift a 40 pound dumbbell. And just as kind of a, a cute outreach, some of his students introduced several then acclaimed bodybuilders like Bill Pearl, the best built man of the century. And immediately, uh, Bill Pearl felt something in Sri Chinmoy. And Sri Chinmoy quickly began transcending himself, lifting 80 pounds, 100 pounds, 200 pound dumbbells, then putting massive amounts of weights on these racks and doing the kind of old time strongman lifts. When and this is just an aside, but you know, in the, in the strongman type of lifts, you only have to lift a weight high enough to pull a piece of paper out from underneath it. So you don't need to like, you know, walk a mile or pull a tractor, et cetera. So he would put these massive stacks of weights on these specially made trusses and push them up, sometimes just a quarter inch, sometimes one inch, sometimes two inches. And those weights were measured in the thousands of pounds. And Bill Pearl began inviting other bodybuilders to see it. And it was absolutely mind-blowing to the point where I think it became too astronomical. And mm -hmm. Chinmoy then began lifting objects that people could relate to. It's, it's hard for somebody to fathom someone who is in their 50s, 60s, or 70s moving 3,000 pounds, 7,000 pounds as a dumbbell. But it was at least acceptable to the mind to see somebody lifting an elephant on a calf raise machine. So by the late 90s, when Sri Chinmoy was was almost in his 70s, he began lifting objects like the front ends of airplanes, like elephants on modified calf raise machines, et cetera. And I made a movie about it. The movie was based on one night in November 2004, when Sri Chinmoy did a public workout at a university in Queens, where he invited some of the best bodybuilders on earth, some of the best athletes on earth, like Carl Lewis, nine-time Olympic gold medalist, 
and went through a series of seemingly understandable lifts, you know, 150 pounds, which was his body weight then 150 times. But throughout the evening, the poundage increased. And by the end, you'll have to see the movie, he lifted a car. And the overall amount of poundage lifted in this four-hour workout was 200,000 pounds plus. I mean, that's like if you just took a 20-pound dumbbell, you would have to lift that 10,000 times. And, you know, if you did 200 pounds, you'd have to lift that a thousand times. Like how many, could you, could you bench press or even calf raise 200 pounds for a thousand reps? Probably not. So I'm probably good for four reps personally. I may be good just to help rack your weight. That's <laughs> I'll take the video. <laughs> so weightlifting began, became a way for him to show that inner peace could be translated into outer power. Mm. That's such a good teaching too. I think it's on one hand, it's unfathomable and it is, it seems like for most people that's impossible, right? Even for us here being like, how could like lifting 20 pounds, 10,000 times is like, no, you couldn't do that. And yet there's something so approachable and um, just genuinely human about Sri Chinmoy and the way that he carried himself and spoke about, you know, people's ability to, to do incredible things. And I think that it's so inspiring, like not to the point where you're like, oh, I could never do that. But it, it makes you wonder about your own personal limits. And buried in that is like that invitation to explore, to explore your own potential as a human. And I, I absolutely love that. And I think that's one of the things that is the, the feat itself is inspiring and amazing, but just like that that curiosity that sparked within us to be like, well, could, could I do that? Like, cause he just, he doesn't seem like he's some crazy bodybuilder. He's just like a, a normal dude. I mean, and so in so many of his activities, the, he relies on the viewer or the audience member having faith. Mm. The lifts are all clearly visible, but you have to really believe what your eyes are seeing. And it was an interesting way for him to really help people build that muscle. I mean, faith is a muscle. It doesn't matter if you are faithful to one particular religion or to one particular philosophy. It's something that's transmissible. You know, if you're with people who believe in something that they can see and you can maybe sort of see, their faith destroys your self-doubt. Hmm. That makes you a stronger, more full human being. So in my own life, I like being around people that, that have a sense of belief, that have a sense of faith, not just in themselves, but in something much greater than themselves, in goals, in energies, in realities, because their faith can strengthen mine. And so this whole activity of Sri Chinmoy's weightlifting was an opportunity for people to even challenge their own notion of possibility. When you saw something that was impossible a minute before, there were more things in life that all of a sudden became possible. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, uh, well, one thing I love that you said there of how outer power can be generated by inner peace, 
And I think that's just profound and beautiful. And we can kind of meditate on this idea that the progress of the body and the progress of the soul go together. But I'm curious, how did seeing Sri Chinmoy create these feats that seemed impossible? How did they break down your own barriers of, of your own of your own beliefs? You know, I I I met Sri Chinmoy and you know, or at least became a student of his in 1994 and then moved to New York in 1997. And then he passed on in 2007. And while he was alive, I don't actually feel like I had time to process. I, I was lucky enough to travel with him with a bunch of other people, you know, to see him almost every single day, spend hours with him. But it was only really in the, in the first few years after he left the physical that I began to try to understand and then integrate a lot of what I saw and felt into daily practice. And, you know, with running, for example, I, you know, that I, I started a movie in 2015 called 3100 Run and Become, which took a few years, like three years. I'd, I'd made another feature length documentary before about farm workers called Food Chains. But that film 3100 was my opportunity to really try to understand his approach to physicality. Now, I, I wanted to be able to do something I could experience as well. And, and the, you know, I made the weightlifting movie as a short in 2012, but it wasn't so much an exploration of, of my own personal self because what he did was pretty much untouchable for anybody else. But, but running, running wasn't, you know, we could, we could all run. And to try to put his achievements and vision into context, I wanted to show myself and then show to an audience that his philosophy was deeply, deeply rooted in the human experience. That this idea of running 3,100 miles, this, this kind of hallmark race of his, wasn't outlandish. And in fact, it tapped into capacities that we had as a society, as a human civilization, thousands and thousands of years ago, that maybe only a few cultures still valued. And so that film explored Navajo, Kalahari Bushmen, Japanese monks, and ultra-distance running all in one meal, so to speak. Mm -hmm. it's, it's such a beautiful film. I've watched it a couple times now. Uh, I watched it again last night just to get re-inspired for this conversation. Um, I thought it, a nice launching point to get into to running as a spiritual practice, even running as as um, man's or humanity's first religion. Can you share your run that you had with uh, that you shared with Sean Martin, the Navajo runner in the Sacred Canyon? Can you just like take us through that experience so that us, the listener, can almost be there with you? For sure, and then the li a little bit of the backstory. I, I I ran in high school in California. And, you know, California is a, a big state. At least then it had 33 million people. Now it has more. And I was in the top eight in, in my events in California in high school. But I didn't, I, I didn't think that, was, that meant anything. You know, it was like, you're not first, you're not second, you're not third. You're like, what does it mean to be seventh or eighth? You, you would have been first in Canada, just so you know. Yeah. There's only 30 million people in all of Canada. So come on down. Yeah, there's lots of space to run. <laughs> And so that, that kind of meant in, in college, I didn't really run. And my, my only kind of framework for running was just hi, the hyper-competitiveness of track. 
And I ran a little bit once Reach and Why was around, and I ran some marathons, but not really putting my own heart and soul into it because I didn't feel like I really had the time to commit, you know, to do 80, 100 miles a week. And therefore, I wasn't really getting much out of running. So fast forward to 2015, and I'm on the Navajo Reservation in Arizona, you know, hanging out with Sean Martin, who was going to be one of the subjects in 3100 Run and Become. He lived very close to a canyon that the Navajo hold very sacred. It's called Canyon de Chey, C-H-E-L-L-Y. And we, we went for a run into this epic, gorgeous, high-rimmed canyon on the canyon floor. And we probably ran seven or eight miles. And I was completely blown away. Like my my eyes were taking in everything. My mind was just completely mesmerized by what I was seeing. And when we returned back to Sean's house, I could see in his face that even though he ran this particular route pretty much every day for the last 10 years, he got so much more out of that run than I did. And it didn't make any sense to me. And so I asked him, I was like, Sean, you look more replenished and rejuvenated from that run than I did. And this is like your ordinary morning run. And Sean said something that's in the movie, which he says better, but I'll paraphrase. He said that Navajo are taught that running is a prayer. And when they run, their feet are praying to Mother Earth. You're breathing in Father Sky. You're asking them for their blessings, and you're showing them that you're willing to work for those blessings. And Sean continued saying, when you make that connection between your feet and the earth, your breath and the sky, you make that connection to the holy people, then you will not only become a champion, you'll become a warrior. And that completely blew me away. I saw in what Sean said, a lot of what I'd seen Sri Chinmoy doing, that a person's heart could be the bridge between the earth and heaven, mm. that the body could channel the energy from Father Sky, from the heavens, through the breath, and transmit that into the body as energy, that we as human vessels, if we're open-hearted, can connect the earth to the skies. And that was the kind of launching point for that entire movie project. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. I love that it's in those moments, like when we don't anticipate something profound, kind of like that can really alter the course of our life. Even you think, oh, maybe just go for, go for a little run and have this experience. And then in that, like you were experiencing it in a way that was profound and meaningful, but then in that conversation after, and even in, in I mean, credit to you, your awareness of Sean and recognizing the experience that he was having and that he had had and, and having some curiosity around that and asking the question, like, what was that for you created this moment where like, as a result, 
you started to pursue these stories and what running can do for us as spiritual beings, not just as physical beings. And then now we have this incredible project, this film you've created that shares that story and people can watch it and be inspired and be challenged and kind of have their eyes open to see you like our human potential as vessels or as conduits of the, the heaven, the coming together of heaven and earth. Like it's an absolutely beautiful moment. I mean, that that's indigenous culture for you. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, when I, I, I then went to the Kalahari Desert in Botswana, where, you know, the, the, the San Bushmen live, and they're not the root tribe of human beings, but geneticists say that every single human being on Earth has DNA from them. Like, they were one of the main tribes that began spreading out of Africa into other parts of the world. And they've lived up until now, and it's if people watch the movie, they'll you'll see how kind of precarious their situation is, but they've been living pretty much in a traditional way for the last 125,000 years. They, they're the ones who traditionally, you know, without the use of advanced weaponry, will chase an animal for days away from watering holes to exhaust those animals. And the unique, really, ability that humans have that no other non-primate has and other primates haven't really learned is the ability to carry water like we can carry water in a sack or like in a little bag and so bushmen would bring enough water to satisfy their body's physical needs for a couple of days and chase an animal to death and that is a long run and when we spend time with our kalahari bushman character he mentioned that like he looked at me kind of incredulously when I said, do you practice running? It's like, why would I practice running? Like running is something that I do to hunt. And then I was like, well, how do you get so good at it that you can like run like two days without many calories and much water? And he said, it's about the connection that your feet have with the earth. And nothing else. Like there's like the physicality. It's no, no, no. We 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 are all physically capable of running and physically capable of running very long distances. But the capacity that you need to develop is the capacity within. And that was exactly what Sean Martin said. And then lastly, we went to the highlands outside of Kyoto, Japan, to meet with a very elusive group of monks called the Senichi Kaihogyo, kind of more colloquially known as the marathon monks. Um, Just in a nutshell, they pick one aspirant every seven or eight years to do a set number of of miles a day. But it's not about the miles. The, The aspirant takes a particular route through particular temples. And over seven years or eight years, they might do 10 different cycles of 100 days. And the mileage might be up to 60, 70, over 100 uh, kilometers a day. And uh, again, the, the kind of hook that most of us in the West really focus on is the fact that if they don't complete any one single day circuit, they have to take their life. Now, of course, the question is, with something like death looming over you at every single step, is your motivation fear? Well, they were saying, no, the motivation is to completely transcend fear. And when you transcend that fear of death, you're in a stream of joy. And it's that joy, it's that penitence, it's that focus on the highest, on Lord Buddha, 
that gives you the sense and the feeling of love, the feeling of devotion that gives you strength unbounded. And so all of these stories were, were similar and they tied completely into Sri Chinmoy's own philosophy and why he wanted human beings to run thousands and thousands of miles. Hmm. Well, you, you talk about this idea of finding happiness through exertion. I just think of, you know, watching um, my, my sons in elementary school now, watch, seeing them watch them run their laps around the school and, and kind of the struggle on their faces and just being able to kind of switch that paradigm to thinking of, of exertion as a, a source for happiness. Um, just back on those Japanese monks that you spoke of, another, another part that kind of blew my mind, not only are they running for for years really, day on day for years, but they, they fast as well. Can you speak to the fast that they take on while they're uh, during this journey and afterwards? Yeah, so the, the first seven cycles of 10, which again, they, they might do a couple cycles in a year, you know, they'll range from 30 to about 60 or 50 miles, you know, upwards of 80 kilometers. But the last three cycles really push up, you know, above 100 kilometers per day. And to mentally prepare for that, they have their, their aspirants fast for, I believe it's eight days. And, you know, we all go, okay, whatever, like maybe a fasting means, you know, juice. Or maybe a, a fasting, a fast means like, okay, no juice, but water. Okay, maybe it means distilled water, but their fast is nothing. No food, no water. And people will immediately go like, well, you can't survive longer than two days with no water. Or maybe you could if you were just like sleeping the whole time. But these aspirants will spend every waking hour chanting, which also means no sleep. So no food, no water, no sleep for eight days. They used to do it in the summer. Um, Kyoto is very hot and muggy and people would die because the lack of water created a a really good little microcosm for mold and bacteria to engulf them from within. So now the fast is, is done, at least for the last 500 years or so, it's, being, it's been done in, in the later months of, of fall, but still no food, no water. Um, and the kind of mentally torturous aspect for those of us who are not initiated into that, you know, that, that monastic um, sect, the aspirant has to offer water at least once a day to the deity of the shrine where he's chanting. And so they have to walk and get the water from a well themselves, unaided. And obviously that walk becomes slower and more arduous with each passing day. And apparently, according to the stories of the two or three people that have done this, by the last day, they can not only, I mean, this, this seems like torture, but it's also, I guess, they, they enjoyed this awareness. They can smell food being cooked anywhere within like a one mile radius of the mountain that they're on. They can identify what you've just eaten by the smell of your clothes, of your skin. And they say they can hear the sound, they can hear when the ash from incense falls and touches the ground. And when we talked to the monk who's in our movie, he'd already done the fast. 
And he basically intimated that those last three cycles, even though on paper they were more arduous, nothing was more arduous than those eight and a half days. Mm -hmm. So they basically die in those eight and a half days. And when they come out the other end, there's nothing in life that seems impossible. It's incredible. <laughs> yeah. What is what? Is, what do you think the connection is between these incredibly challenging experiences, whether it is like an eight-day fast or a thirty-one hundred-mile run over the course of between oh fifty-some odd days? What is the connection between pushing ourselves? to limits of, of our physical abilities or what we would think is possible or even safe or reasonable and the growth of our spiritual lives? That, that's a great question. And it'll tie into the, the race that Sri Chinmay founded, the self-transcendence 3,100 mile race. It's, you know, obviously you can't be a Navajo, you know, you're born a Navajo, you can't be a Bushman and very few people have the ability or interest in joining this particular sect of monks in Kyoto. But the 3,100 mile race is made for you and me. It takes place around a 0.58 mile loop, just under a kilometer long loop of a very ordinary school in a very ordinary neighborhood in Queens, New York City. Now for folks who have done ultra distance running, like you'll understand that like the idea of a, of a loop course like that is actually heaven. You know, like you don't have to worry about bathrooms. You pass through the aid station every kilometer. You've got RVs there. If you need to take 15, 20, 30 minutes of rest, there's tons of food. And basically all the things that would create mental anxiety are not factors. But these runners have to achieve close to 100 kilometers a day, about 97 kilometers a day in order to finish within the 52-day distance. And there haven't been many pro ultra runners that have finished this race. Um, most people come from just ordinary backgrounds, and they, over years, prepare themselves for this race through consistency, through discipline through training themselves to get to the starting line. And I, I think that's the, the big lesson. You know, the Japanese monks don't worry about their 10 cycle quest because they've prepared for years to tow that starting line. And for the 3,100 mile runners, they develop all the qualities they need to finish the race well before the race. It's like, as you know, from anything athletic, you wanna, take, you wanna remove all the variables. A lot of the variables around this race are self-doubt, anxiety, not being able to find your sense of balance, not being able to pull out a sense of inner strength and poise when there are blisters or bad weather, et cetera. And so more than, more than anything, that particular race shows the qualities of having an inner, or it shows the, the, the importance of having an inner life. You know, when you have an inner life, you can find the resources somewhere to finish that race. Yeah, so incredible. I love what you said about taking out all of the anxieties of a long distance run and it's got all the practicalities in a, in a kilometer loop. Um, when we watch this, the, the characters are not 
um, you know, your Courtney DeWalters or Killian Jornets. They're not these, these kind of magazine-esque athletes that we're used to seeing in ultra endurance sports. These guys are, are everyday, you know, Joes that are on a spiritual path, uh, but they're, they're postmen and uh, musicians and, you know, people that have um, normal, non-paying athletic jobs <laughs> that have come here on a, a spiritual path. So can you, can, can you kind of tell the story a little bit of, um, of one of the characters, um, Ash Prinal, uh, his journey from, from Finland, and maybe what you learned from him personally, um, some of your takeaways that um, how he's inspired you or what, what he's taught you in his own, his own quest. Absolutely. So Ashbihan Al-Alto is a star of the 3,100-mile film, and he actually just ran the race and completed it last week for the 16th time. 3,100 miles is basically 11 kilometers short of 5,000 kilometers. And yes, people from metric countries, after they finish 3,100 miles, do run the extra 11 laps to be on this kind of very short list of people that have done an officially sanctioned certified loop adding up to 5,000 kilometers. He's a postman. In his 20s, he had his own crisis of faith and decided to abandon society. And in doing that, he took on a physical challenge. I mean, it was like the, the, the Reese Witherspoon movie, Wild. Like, he went to the Appalachian Trail. And he learned after... 2,000 some odd miles that everything he he needed in life could fit within his backpack. And if it didn't fit in his backpack, he didn't need it. He took on the challenge of doing the Pacific Crest Trail, the whole thing from Mexico, Southern California, all the way up to Canada. A little bit longer, took him a little bit longer, but the one thing that he brought with him on that trip that he didn't bring on the Appalachian Trail was the Bhagavad Gita, uh, basically India's version of the Bible a conversation between a warrior, Arjuna, and his charioteer, who was also a spiritual master, Krishna, about morality, spirituality, and the necessity to do what's right and to do one's duty, regardless of the result. And he took all that back with him to his postal job in Finland. And he'd become a student of Sri Chinmay by then and decided on a lark to enter a 700-mile race. And he won. <laughs> these types of races are basically races of attrition. doesn't matter how great of an athlete you are. If you're not trying to move every waking hour, chances are someone will catch you. And so the best 24, 48-hour, 6-day, 10-day runners on earth are ones that can maintain a good pace and get less than three hours of sleep a night. And so Ashpihanal found that he was very good at being uncomfortable, that what was uncomfortable to other people wasn't uncomfortable to him. And discomfort includes indigestion, it includes inclement weather and how you deal with it, blisters, oh, He could handle that. That made, it, that made him a good ultra runner. Now, this is casting shade upon a whole class of champion ultra runners out there who 
rely and they i think they know they rely solely on their genetics and and of course you know a good deal of mental strength but their genetics can get them through most races that other people can't their mental strength gets them on the podium to beat other people with similarly good genetics but when you stretch the distance out the genetic differences between people of the same sex and people of different sex begin to disappear. And it becomes much more about cheerfulness, enthusiasm than it does with grit and dissociation from what might be going on in your mind and relying solely on the genetic gifts and the, the the training that those genetic gifts have have afforded an ultra distance runner. So in the history of the 3100, there's really only been one person who's been in the top three or four all time in a kind of more traditional ultra distance, like 24 hour or 48 hour run. And he did spectacularly well. Um, his name was Wolfgang Schwark, but he had an Indian spiritual teacher of his own who gave him the name Madhupran. Not Sri Chinmoy, but he was coming from a background of deeply practiced faith. And in that sense, like Ashri Hanal's, you know, measurable lower distance records, his 24-hour times, his 48-hour times, his 100-mile times, he doesn't have the genetics. But he has the flexibility of the mind that allows him to approach each of these 52 days, or if he is running fast, 40, 41 days of the 3,100 mile race as a child would, completely excited, completely enthusiastic. And yes, for sure, a number of professional runners have those qualities, but I'm just, again, throwing shade on them because <laughs> a lot of them, and I've spoken to some, have put the 3,100 mile run on their bucket list, but for a few of them, it's been on their bucket list for a decade. So it's more of like a vision board rather than something that they conquered their fear to uh, to try to attempt. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder if there is some some fear or trepidation in being this person who's known for running ultra distances and and doing it very successfully on like a large scale. Coming to as you said, and I, I love it, uh, a very ordinary block in a very ordinary, you know, <laughs> section of New York where you're running this little lap. And, and I wonder if there's some sense of like, oh man, what if I can't do it? Like, what if I, as this runner, like can't keep up or can't finish with these, you know, regular people? There, there was a runner this year and a complete hats off to him. A, 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 now a good friend of mine, Stephen Redfern, who's an Australian national record holder in a number of the quote, shorter ultra distance events. And after about day 20, 22 of this 52 day race, he developed such severe unavoidable foot problems that he had to come to terms with the fact that there was no way for him to finish. And why continue on when you know you're not gonna get to the goal? I mean, a lot of pros, not just ultra distance runners, but marathoners, half marathoners, will step off a course if they don't think that they're going to get a great time. But Stephen, to his credit, realized that this type of distance was much more about the journey. That mm -hmm. you know, he ended up running over 2,700 miles, over 4,000 kilometers. 
Like that was more than he'd ever run before. And the process of getting there was, I believe, transformative for him. So it didn't really matter that he ran 3,100 miles, that he, that he didn't reach 3,100 miles. And he himself had to deal with the idea that a lot of people in Australia were probably expecting him not just to finish, but maybe win. And it was a huge lesson for him, maybe not as a professional ultra runner, but as a human being. Mm -hmm. I was like complete hats off to him. He became like an absolute, like, like the epitome of, of like transcendence. He had so many obstacles and his goal was not to define success through anyone else's eyes, but to define success through his own experience. So, so you've witnessed all of these amazing individuals and, and, and cultures and peoples, um, for some of which running is an ancestral practice. Um, can you talk to what you've learned and what you've experienced um, running as a spiritual practice, running to be closer to God? Um, what does that What does that mean to you? Um, what have you experienced and what have you felt in this this journey of running as a spiritual practice? Well, the gap for me had always been between the idea of running daily and competition. And Ashby Hanal talks about it in the movie, like in the, but the 3,100 mile run is not a 3,100 mile run. It's a 3,100 mile race. And the spiritual aspect of running, I realized has to involve competition. Hmm. And of course you're competing against yourself but we're not good at pulling out our own capacity. Sometimes it's that idea of faith. You have to be around people that have faith that they can do a particular time or a particular performance. And being with them and feeling that energy can pull us to achievements we wouldn't have thought were possible. And that might include a race or just doing a workout with people that have unlocked more capacity in themselves than, than, than you have in yourself. And so that idea of integrating competition into spiritual practice really finally made sense to me when I had the opportunity to, to do a prayer run with a bunch of Native American kids. And on the Hopi reservation, an elder named Rex Taliam Tewa told us first in Hopi and then translated into English that running means to feel, running means to find the joy in exertion. Running means to find the joy in exertion. And so, you know, like I was like knocking this idea of like pro runners relying on their genetics and using that to achieve something. And a lot of us have that experience where we're pushing ourselves and we just want to get it over with. We're relying on our training. We're relying on an expectation of a certain time. We're looking at our watch. We're looking at our heart rate. And we know that if we stick to those numbers, we'll get to a particular result and that result will give us joy. But Rex said, no, like the joy is in those moments where you are pushing and pushing and pushing. And that's not really easy to experience. Like that takes practice. Like if you want to feel that in a race, you have to find a way in your moments of exertion to practice unlocking that joy. 
Elliot Kipchoge, whom everybody knows, a sub two hour marathoner, world record holder in uh, you know just a, the a regular marathon race, said recently that he embraces pain. One of the reasons why he smiles, particularly in the last few miles of a, of, of a marathon, is because he's experiencing pain, and that pain is a barrier to be conquered. Mm. When you're feeling pain. You know, obviously not acute pain, but when you're feeling that kind of normal pain in a in a long distance race, you are at the edge of your body's capacity at that moment. You know, it's not to say that you're going to always do a personal best, but at that moment, you're at your threshold. And when you're at that threshold, you have an opportunity to go beyond. Now, Rex was saying that to go beyond, you have to find that joy. That joy is what's going to make you transcend the experience of pain during exertion. And when I put all that together, that's when I realized, okay, running is a spiritual practice. Like spiritual practices aren't just about like, oh my God, I feel good. Like, let me light some candles, take a bath. Not that that's bad, but it's more than that. Spirituality and a spiritual practice is constantly expanding within constantly expanding your sense of satisfaction it takes the act of aspiration deep inner hunger which is not always a comfortable satisfying experience that aspiration that inner cry is what takes you from level to level to level and so in running to achieve that real sense of satisfaction like you would in your own spiritual practice you have to push yourself and a lot of times it takes other people. It takes that idea of the adrenaline around competition, the, the banishment of fear, the knowing that from the beginning of an event to the very end, you're not going to be striving to just have an experience. You're going to be trying to do the best you can that day. And that gets you to a particular place in your heart and your mind where you can see where your limitations are. And that's when you can choose, depending on the day and the conditions, to try to go beyond that actual physical and mental barrier. Um, and that's spirituality. Hmm. That's so good. It's like we we often will search out teachers for us in terms of like spirituality or other things, or even in athletics, we'll have coaches and all of that. And but to to see the the people alongside journeying with us, right? As teachers as well, or as competitors we don't often use that language when we're talking about spirituality we don't try to compete and be more spiritual than someone else but that idea of like spurring one another on to discover like that next level or to move further along our own journey uh, makes perfect sense right and we help each other hey I, I read this incredible book or i've been starting this practice of mindfulness or whatever it is and and we can encourage one another through our own actions to do it and i, I love that because sometimes i feel like we don't use language of competition or achievement when it comes to our spiritual practices, but it is something that we want to continue to move towards and grow in and push and find those edges. And the only way we can do that is when we have people who are either going to coach us and push us along or be there alongside us. And we want to keep up and grow and move together in that way. I, I really, really love that. I've never thought about it that way. I think it's really important and, and quite profound in how we can pursue our own greatness. I mean, of course, the, the, the kind of better word I should have used is inspiration, right? Other people can inspire us. But at, at the same time, like, I found that by 
signing up for races, putting things on the calendar, my mind develops a sense of focus and is less of a barrier. Like during like, you know, 2020, when there were no races on the schedule, it was really hard to motivate for workouts that would challenge myself or even for, for, for weeks that would challenge me physically. But having something even in the distance to work towards gives you ways to measure your progress. You know, you can measure past workouts. And, you know, when you feel like you're getting better, it doesn't matter what your times are. It doesn't matter how long you run. But, like, the innate, purest feeling of joy that a human being can have, in my opinion at least, is to feel that they're getting better at something. And yeah, like you can be getting better every day at meditation, but it's kind of hard for your mind to really understand or, 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 or really kind of just comprehend or measure that experience of getting better. But when you're doing something physical, if you can do more setups, if you're like hit class wasn't as hard as it was a couple months ago, or your soul cycle or your Peloton experience is getting easier, you know, like you feel better about yourself and you feel better about life. I mean, that is, I hate to say it, if this bursts somebody's bubble, but that's kind of the only meaning in life. Mm. You know, you just, you find joy in everything you can. And when you get better at something, it's so much easier to find joy. So for those listening, if they're like, wow, I love this idea of transcendence of, of running as a spiritual practice, as running as a meditation, but they're they haven't found their start line yet. They, you know, one kilometer seems intimidating, two kilometers seems impossible. Can you talk about start lines about finding finding your own inner race that it doesn't have to be 3100 miles it can be lacing up your shoes and and just having your own journey yeah i mean i think first of all people are listening to your podcast they're already kind of on the on the right track to getting some structure and getting some inspiration but it it is simple you know it's setting a goal you know whether that goal is getting to a particular muscle mass or getting to a particular, you know, even if it's okay to like want to look better too, to, to look better in a dress or in a suit, um, to do your first 5K, to do something you haven't done since you were in your teens. The most important thing, set a goal and realize then that the goal is there so that you can have a journey and that that journey has to have discipline. It has to have consistency but the joy you're going to get is 90% of the joy is going to be in the journey because you can't tell what the result is going to be. You know, maybe you don't quite fit into the suit or the dress, but you're still pretty close or you don't quite get the time you want to get. But if you can realize that the joy is in the journey, then you begin understanding that the entire journey is going to make you a happier, better person and that it's worth setting aside a certain amount of time each day preferably in the morning, because we all know that if we say, oh, we're going to do this at night, it kind of never happens. <laughs> and, you know, with the with rare exceptions, like if you have a newborn, you can pretty much get up earlier than anybody else in your household if you really want to. 
and put in the 15, 20, 30 minutes of anything, whether it's starting a spiritual practice, whether it's, you know, it's doing a YouTube class, whether it's going out for a jog or a walk or a hike, you know, number one, set the goal. It's ideal, but something physical to have an event that you're going to do, whether it's Spartan or Tough Mudder or a local 5K or whatever. Find that race, develop a plan, and then do your best to get there. And if obstacles come along the way that are insurmountable, just move the goal, mm. you know? But the main thing, as we all know, you know, from life is consistency. You know, you don't get better at something in with massive leaps and bounds. You get better at something by doing it regularly, even if it's just a minimal amount of time. Can you speak to an experience you had? Um... It's probably a few years ago now. You had a, a, I believe, a marathon coming up that um, didn't go how you planned. And uh, upon getting home, you reflected on a poem by Sri Chinmoy. Um, the summary was that the victory is is not being able to separate victory from defeat. That there is that there is celebration and progress and transcendence in, in both. And 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 that person that can see that victory and defeat um, are the same as the true, the true winner. Do you, do you remember this, this poem and this experience? The poem is gendered and Sui Chen was, was, you know, learned English in the fifties. So this, he means everybody. He's going to use the word he. So here's the poem, the winner and the loser. He is the great winner who wins. He is the greater winner who is the cheerful loser. He is the greatest winner who gives equal value to victory and defeat. He is the great winner who wins. He is the greater winner who is the cheerful loser. He is the greatest winner who gives equal value to victory and defeat. He alone is the real loser who separates defeat from victory. He alone is the real loser who separates defeat from victory. So I was training pretty diligently then at the age, I'm, I'm almost 48, I was 47, you know, during this experience, trained very diligently to run the California International Marathon in Sacramento, December, 2022, 2021. And probably in the best shape I've, I've, I've been in. I have a good coach, you know, she's a, a, a former world record holder, actually, Patty Catalano Dillon, um, America's best marathoner in the late 70s and early 80s. And she felt I was on 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 track to do you know a sub two thirty marathon. I felt good. I felt strong, and you know got felled with what I know now to have been COVID. Even though I tested negative on a ton of at home tests, but we know that at home tests can be trash. Um, <laughs> and recovered in two weeks, and somehow thought I could pull it all together to do a marathon six weeks after that California International Marathon in Houston. Um, in the middle of January of this year, 2022. And uh, showed up at the start line with a lot more eagerness than ability in hindsight. And the Friday before the Sunday, it was um, close to 75 Fahrenheit out in uh, in Houston for international listeners. Like it was, I don't know what that is, like 17, 18 Celsius. But on race morning, it was minus four Celsius. It was 23 degrees Fahrenheit. And uh, 
after 12 miles, nearly 20 kilometers, I was frozen to the touch. Mm. And I was putting out an effort where I should have been going a lot faster. And so, you know, basically, like, I spent probably a few thousand dollars to go for a long run, like the flight to Houston, the hotel, the marathon registration. And you're just going like, oh, my God. Like, I spent all of 2021 training for a marathon in December that didn't happen. And I kind of tried to parlay this fitness into something in January 2022. And like, where do I go from here? It's like, is there anything at all to learn from this? And that wasn't apparent right away. Like, I was like, well, there's nothing I really could have done better. I can't, I'm not beating up on myself because it wasn't like I really quit. It was more like halfway through, I realized that this was going to be a horrible experience. Like, I was freezing, you know, like I was you know, had overexerting physically, but just that you have to live to see another day. Um, and that's when I kind of was just looking online at, at some of Sri Chamoy's like poems and found this one and said, that's kind of the lesson, you know, mm-hmm. I, I cannot let this bog me down. I can't think of this as, <clears throat> I can't think of this as victory. I can't ignore it, but it's just an experience that's all it is. And if I really want to make progress, I just have to treat it as a 12 mile long run. It was a really good 12 mile long run. And like, I, you know, went back to the hotel and I ate a meal as though I just run a 26 mile marathon. And I said, I'm just going to make this a really positive experience in every way I can. Mm. That in many ways embodies or, or just like lives into that quote that, uh, we have your peace begins when expectation ends. And you went in obviously with all of the expectation of what this run would be. And I think we can all, if we've, if we've run any amount of <laughs> runs in our life, we could say, yeah, that one didn't meet the expectation. But often the, the feeling we have is not peace when that happens. Did you cultivate yeah. that? Is that something that you had to like, you know, as you share that story, like the the, the decision, the conscious decision to say, I'm going to just make this a, a long run. But is that something that like you had to struggle with? Is that something, was there peace in that? And when did that happen? Like partway through afterwards, when did that peace become part of it rather than the the expectation you may have had going in? I mean, the, the, the quote you found was great. It's obviously easier not to have expectation when you're just like a hobby jogger. Um, and it's not like your livelihood and you don't have to pay bills. Um, but that, that, that aside, I was struggling that with that in the race, right? Because through mile six, I was like, this is not feeling normal. Like I am pushing. And if I was pushing this hard, I should be running this much faster. Like something is not right. But then again, it's just like, am I being weak? You know, am I, am I not finding joy in this exertion? And after a few more miles, I was like, no, I am finding joy in this exertion. But like something's actually wrong. <laughs> I, I, I am not medically, you know, able to assess right now. And then I saw this skinny African guy who was n- no doubt in the lead pack. I, I passed him at mile 11 and he was on the side, you know, 
just like finding one spot of sun standing in it, like glistening in sweat. And like, you could see like he dropped out and like he has come all this way to run this marathon with the pros, probably with the expectation originally of getting cash that, you know, the Houston marathon is not like Boston or New York, but it's like people do run world-class times and like they would get, you know, five figures, if not six figures for, for winning. And that would have probably meant a lot to him. I mean, I'm assuming that he was living, he was definitely of African origin. Um, you know, maybe he trained in New Mexico or something. I don't know, but he was sacrificing a paycheck. And that's when I realized if it's okay with him, for him, like those expectations that he had were real. And he's found peace with going like, this is not going to like, you know, like be a great experience for me because he was shivering. Mm. Over the next mile, I kind of gave myself the possibility of pulling the plug too. And, you know, it wasn't something that all these years of spiritual practice prepared me for. Like I had a, I had a mile where I was going like, you can do it. You can do it. No, you can't. You can do it. And when I stopped, I stopped for like 15 seconds and then I ran a hundred more meters. And I was like, nope, <laughs> nope, 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 nope. Uh -huh. Stopping felt better than restarting. So yeah, it was, it, it, it's hard. It's really, it's, it's hard. Even in those situations where you know that it's not going to end well, 16 more miles or 14 more miles when I was already kind of physically suffering. You know, we, I don't train for that experience. I don't want that experience. And if it means that I've got to pull the plug and maybe get to another, get to run another race in a couple of months, I'll choose that other race. It's so, yeah, I love that. I love that story you shared. Thank you uh, for, for sharing that. It really illustrates the point, even though we were talking about before, like with the competitors kind of spurring us on to this idea of greatness and maybe achieving a time or a pace that we wouldn't have otherwise. But even in that, it's, it's the runner that you saw that pulled out ahead and his peace with that decision and even experiencing kind of just this moment of joy and, and bliss standing in the sunshine, like that, equally so gave you the permission or the possibility to say, I can stop too. And it's not going to be like this tragic moment in my life. Like I can stop and still be joyful. I love that we can encourage each other on in both directions, right? To be great or to say, you know what, today's not my day. I mean, it, one of the reasons, one of the ways in hindsight, I know it was the right decision. is like, you know, when you have a really beautiful, positive experience, like you can visualize that for like years to come, I would be able to, I wouldn't be able to recognize this guy if I saw him. Like I can see him right now standing on the side with a little kind of like 12 inch by 12 inch towel that somebody must have handed him. And like, that's an enduring image. And I saw that and it gave me the permission not to literally wreck myself. So, you know, I go, oh, I gotta shake that guy's hand if I see him again. Yeah, that inspires me to get to the point where I like, push myself to failure and I celebrate with the other, with the other DNFs at a race or something, just <laughs> yeah. like high-fiving them. Like, yeah, we didn't make we it. Didn't we didn't do it. Oh, like, you know, the, the, the great thing was that I, it took a while for the bus to, to get me. I mean, it was freezing and like, I wasn't at the front, but I wasn't at the back either. So like to get that kind of like, like, you know, trawler bus, I, I waited for an hour. And then it zipped me right back to the uh, 
the finish line. And so it dropped me off at the finish line and I was kind of walking through the city at about an official time that would have placed me under 215, 216 for the marathon. And so like people who were like at the finish line watching, as they saw me walking down the street, they would turn around, they're all clapping for me. <laughs> here's a guy that must've finished like top 15 or 20. And it was like, it wasn't walk of shame because no one's looking at, it was like the reverse yeah, where everyone's cheering for you. And you're just going like, yeah, I'm not going to explain to everybody <laughs> when I stopped and how I got here. It was just, it was just funny. Yeah. You were, you were being applauded for your, for your effort and for the decision to pull out. Right. It's like the universe conspired to be like, here, we're going to give you some kudos. We're going to give you some props. Everybody was saying like, great job, man. Awesome boy. You look great. And I was like, yeah, yeah I just did 12 miles. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. All right. Well, I've got a couple of uh, small questions before we wrap up and I hope that we can share a trail together one day, maybe in Vancouver, maybe in New York, um, transcend some, some steps together. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, all of your, all of your work from, from food chains to gather to 3,100, they're all hugely inspiring for, for different reasons. And, you know, I'd love to get into your other docs at another time, but, um, you seem to be on this, this path of, of illuminating, um, you know, these incredible causes and, and, and happenings around the world. So, uh, is there anything on your radar coming up that you can share with us that we can be excited for? Well, it's very kind of you to say those words. Um, I, I, as most of us do, like I pick things that inspire me, and if they happen to to be of any other value to other people, it means I, I've I've done a, an okay job at it. But like first and foremost, the stories I try to tell are ones that I know will get keep me excited during the three four year process of development and production, and for for years afterwards to continue talking about the themes and relearning and really absorbing, you know, what, what I saw, like all of these things teach me. Um, I'm working on a scripted movie about my running coach, Patty Catalano Dillon. She was incidentally Nike's first female sponsored athlete at the age of 23, in her words, an overweight, very unhappy, deeply insecure night nurse in a suburb of Boston. She took up running on a lark. And a few months later, had lost 40 pounds in a, in a few months. Which, I mean, I can't lose five pounds in six months. So, like, she lost 40 pounds in a couple months and placed first in a local marathon running a time of two hours and 53 minutes. First marathon. And somebody said, you could be a pro. Like in those days, I think the year that she won that marathon in 1976, the winner of the Boston Marathon ran, female ran 251. So over the next four years, Patty, now Dylan, Patty Dylan, she was then Patty Catalano, was runner up at Boston three years in a row, second place at New York City, American record holder for everything from the road 5K all the way up to the women's marathon. She was the women's world record holder in a women's only in the women's only non-paced marathon division, um, and everything good that could have happened to a pro runner happened to her. Everything bad that could have happened to 
Nike's first female sponsored athlete of indigenous, actually Mi'kmaq First Nations heritage in an era when women weren't really permitted to run and where there was no structure around women's professional running, where the agents were out to do everything they wanted, everything bad that could have happened to her happened to her. So this movie is like the highs and the lows of her as a, tri a triumphant ending, but the script is written and it's being produced by the same folks that, that did Little Miss Sunshine way back in the day. So um, it's kind of like, I say, it's like Wonder Woman meets Rocky. It's a true life story about just this heroic journey of someone who started running in clogs and, you know, eventually became the most storied marathoner of a generation. So hopefully we'll shoot it next year and people will get to see it in 2024. Fingers crossed. Okay. Amazing. I can't wait. That sounds so, so good. What a story. Thank you. <laughs> All right, I want to ask you one about one quote, and then um, we've got a closing question that Dean will uh, close us out with. And um, I just want to say, I, I can't wait to go for a run. I'm so inspired right now. I just want to lace my shoes up totally. and, and like sprint out the door. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a very um, like fall day here in Vancouver. It's very rainy, very windy, but I'm like, let's get out there. <laughs> yeah, let's get those let's get those steps. Um, okay, I love this quote. I think it was at the end of. Um, your um, documentary, Challenging Impossibility. Above the toil of life, my soul is a bird of fire, winging the infinite. I'll say it just one more time, just because it just it just hung to me in such a beautiful way that I uh, just want to say it one more time, and then you can share what this means to you. Above the toil of life, my soul is a bird of fire, winging the infinite. Sri Chinmoy. What does that mean to you, Sanjay? To be honest, I I I would just have the li the listener just repeat that to themselves. Thank you. Because I can feel something from that, but it the sentiment is so beyond anything that I can comprehend. You know, it feels like a glimpse of what we consider infinity, but that Sri Chinmoy poet in this case experienced as a reality mm. i love that thank you for for that uh contemplation i appreciate that yeah that's good it's a beautiful quote for sure layers of meaning for each of us as we sit with it above the toil of life my soul is a bird of fire winging the infinite beautiful Sanjay, we are so appreciative of you, your time, the work that you've done in the world, um, the way that you have channeled the things and the people and the stories that inspire you into uh, a work that is readily and easily available to the masses uh, to serve as inspiration for us and for yeah anyone who, who encounters you and your work. So thank you, thank you, thank you for what you've created and what you are creating. Um, we need storytellers like you and people who, who gather these important stories and share them in the world. And um, we're so grateful to have you on the podcast. That was one of our goals with creating this, this platform and, and using it was to share stories of inspiration, to share stories where people would listen and contemplate beautiful words, um, wisdom, human stories of human potential, and just 
transcending the bounds of what possibility is to us. And we called our podcast with great intention, a little more good, knowing that that is what we wanted to put out in the world and see and do and kind of live into each and every day. But we love to hear from, from our guests, like what that phrase or what that sentiment stirs or means for you a little more good. I mean, I, when you guys first reached out to me and I kind of discovered your podcast, the title spoke to me because that's, that's, you know, what I've been studying with Sri Chinmoy, the idea of self-transcendence. The way I read it, and I guess adjectives can mean different things, but it's like a little more good than yesterday, a little more good than before. To me, it spoke to the idea of progress and making little bits of progress. I mean, that's the way I found joy in life. When I, I look at the satisfaction that achievements have brought, yeah, there's high highs, but those highs are fleeting. And the, the experiences that have made me, I guess, who I am today are much more about the incremental steps forward and making slow but steady and consistent progress in life rather than achieving high highs. Well, thank you, Sanjay. Uh, Thanks. So grateful for your time. And uh, yeah, I can't wait to lace some shoes up with you and go for a run. In the oh, that would be fantastic. Yes. Right. Many thanks, my friend. All right. That was amazing. We've got this like 600 meter loop right by where Dean and I live. It's kind of like a, a neighborhood loop. Yeah. I just want to go run it for like, uh, you know, maybe not 52 days, but uh maybe 52 minutes yeah i know right but it is we we've talked about it before like even i think it was a couple of years ago or, or whenever we first kind of got onto this this uh, documentary and the idea of these people running this self-transcendence race around a block in new york we're like well what if we did something like that here and just like just saw how far we could yeah. go like because you're right close to home like if you if you bonk and you you kind of crash out like you can just kind of pull walk walk a few hundred meters of your home drink yeah have, you, a, have a bathroom break whatever that's right it's all right here and just like it was that sense that wonder of like i wonder how far we could actually run like how many loops could you do and then i mean you see people run 3100 miles around a block and it's you're like wow you could run a far far distance okay let's do it dean let's see so, how far how many loops we can do yeah We'll, Not we'll, limit ourselves. That's right. It's challenge we'll, impossibility. We'll have to maybe invite Sanjay out to come for a run with us. Yeah. Uh, I just saw you're wearing, I just noticed you're wearing your, your run oh. and become, find your bliss, running champ, Ryan Wilms sweater too, which was inspired by Sanjay's work. That's true. I I wish that I could say that I had planned that. I just threw this on because it's one of my favorite sweaters to wear. Perfect. And I'm heading out to run club uh, this evening. So I was like, oh, I'll just pop this on as as. Thing, but yeah, it's actually go. so perfect. Shout out to Rain Champ and Ryan Wilms and uh, Sanjay Raywell. Amazing. Yeah, we hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, please, please, please uh, share it with a friend, a runner in your life, or someone who may become a runner, or someone who's interested in the path of spirituality and fitness. There's so many good um, takeaways from this conversation. And of course, just to celebrate Sanjay and his incredible work, be sure to check out those documentaries. Um, they're all well worth your time and will leave you better than when you hit play on them for sure um our gratitude is extended to him again for for just uh, sharing his time with us and and uh, sharing his stories um so that we could capture them and, and share them with you but ultimately yes. thank you thank you thank you for tuning in like and 
feel free to leave a comment. Just tell us what you loved about this episode. It goes a long way as you continue to spread the goodness for us as we spread the goodness through this platform. All right. Find your bliss. Run and become. Peace. 